Present-day Unitarian Universalism doesn't consider the Hebrew and Christian Bibles to be the divinely inspired Word of God. Yet, like many other sources that UUism draws upon, some stories and poetic passages can be instructive. And in the biblical book of Hosea, the opening of the fourth chapter reads in part, Hear the word of the Lord, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the seas are dying. While some 2,700 years ago, this passage symbolically expressed the cost of not giving their God his due, regrettably, now it's not only metaphorical. For as we mark the halfway point between annual April Earth Day observances today, at least one out of every 10 species of plants and animals on Earth faces extinction, a number that could reach two-thirds by the end of this century. Renowned Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson described this loss of genetic diversity of genetic diversity as the folly our descendants are least likely to forgive us. Added to this, last month global warmth surged far above previous September records, even further than what scientists consider astounding increases in July and August. Earth's average temperature surpassed the previous September record by more than half a degree Celsius, or 0.9 degrees Fahrenheit, the largest monthly margin ever observed. Scientists say this unprecedented rise increases the chances for other deadly heat waves and floods like those that have recently hit many parts of the planet. As the book of Hosea points out, this is a charge against you who live in the land. And importantly, it's one that springs not just from righteous indignation, but also from grief and lamentation. Lamentation asks us to dip into the world's river of sorrow, not just watch safely from the bank. It's not a place I want to swim every day. But we must all occasionally wade into painful places if our lives, including our spiritual and ethical lives, are to be genuine. Because in doing so, we open ourselves honestly to life's realities. And there are times when placing ourselves in the presence of truth will produce profound sadness. The land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea are dying. The scope and pace of planetary destruction is unmatched, and humans are the cause. We can avoid this truth and live in defiant denial, as many do, we can cynically dismiss it, another escape hatch, or we can understand that to grieve is to begin to cut through such denial and numbness. Therefore, lamentation is an act of moral courage, both individual and collective. 
As biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, real criticism begins in the capacity to grieve because that is the most visceral announcement that things are not right. And as long as the empire can keep the pretense alive that things are all right, there will be no real grieving and no serious criticism. Indeed, the empire, large portions of government, Wall Street and transnational corporations, most commercially driven mass media and much more, are frantically trying to keep the deadly pretense alive so as to deflect the need for fundamental change that serious criticism demands. And there's a second aspect of our situation that deserves lamenting. For not only is the natural world crumbling around us, but cultural life seems to be following hand in hand. So much so that part of the echoing speech around the globe concerns the imminent end of the world, the proverbial end times. Mythologist Michael Mead addresses this confluence. To be alive at this time means to be consciously exposed to the raw forces of both nature and culture. Evidence of the fraying web of nature and the unraveling of the fabric of culture make for strange bedfellows as environmentalists and fundamentalists arrive at similar gloomy conclusions about the future. Nature and culture, so long divided in the West and seemingly opposed to each other, find a meeting place in the idea of annihilation. Let's take a moment with that thought. Nature and culture, so long divided in the West and seemingly opposed to each other, find a meeting place in the idea of annihilation. However, as challenging as this historical moment is, Michael Mead assures us that despite all the cultural chatter about the end, it is actually our formative cultural and religious narratives and the socioeconomic and political systems built on them that end. The world goes on, and with it lives hope and new possibilities. And our global situation, including realizing such new possibilities, is the very type of challenge that James Luther Adams, perhaps the most influential Unitarian Universalist theologian and social ethicist of the 20th century, calls UUs and others to wrestle with. Some of his many wise words include these. The prophetic liberal church is the church in which all members share in the common responsibility to attempt to foresee the consequences of human behavior, both individual and institutional, with the intention of making history in place of being merely pushed around by it. Only through the prophethood of all believers can we together foresee doom and mend our common ways. Doom is a strong word, and while, as I noted, this isn't doomsday, the future shape of life on this planet is in our hands right now. And like you, I don't want to be pushed around by history. I'd rather help make it. Yet this can only happen 
when we open ourselves and our collective prophetic imagination to the proposition that another radically different world is truly possible. Because always the prophetic precedes the pragmatic. As Walter Brueggemann writes, we need to ask not whether it is realistic or practical or viable, but whether it is imaginable. The imagination must come before the implementation. And all over the globe, there are countless people and organizations combining their prophetic imaginations with the serious criticism Brueggemann also mentioned. Here are just a few examples. In 2015, not long before that year's vital global climate talks in Paris, Pope Francis released what came to be known as his Green Papal Encyclical on care for our common home. This fervent call for a new world order based on a consciousness of fundamental interconnectedness was both a searing assessment of our present social and economic order, the critical aspect, and a soaring appeal for a new and radically inclusive ethic of life on earth, the imaginative aspect. Francis warned that our common home, our spaceship Earth, is badly damaged and that our present global systems are clearly unsustainable. And he stated that, quote, every effort to protect and improve our world entails profound changes in lifestyles, models of production and consumption, and the established structures of power which today govern societies. Lifestyles our personal choices and habits, especially in the so-called developed world. Models of production and consumption, business and economics, and the established structures of power which today govern societies, politics. Basically, the spiritual and moral leader of over a billion Catholics is saying that in order to come into right relationship with the biosphere, everything needs to change. And with the upcoming annual UN Climate Change Conference, also known as COP28, scheduled for December in Dubai, where Francis well knows the data is expected to show that governments lag far behind the 2015 Paris Accord goals, less than three weeks ago, on October 4th, the Pope released a follow-up known as an apostolic exhortation. In it, he noted how little world leaders have accomplished since 2015 and lamented both an absence of accountability mechanisms for climate commitments and a, quote, failure of conscience and responsibility. He also reiterated that, quote, a broad range, uh, I'm sorry, a broad change in the irresponsible lifestyle connected with the Western model would have a significant long-term effect. And wrote, we must move beyond the mentality of appearing to be concerned but not having the courage needed to produce substantial changes. Cardinal Michael Cerny followed up on this in an interview saying of the Pope's critical imagination, to the powerful, Pope Francis dares to repeat this question. Why do you want to preserve today a power that will be remembered for its inability to intervene when it was urgent and necessary to do so? In another imaginal sphere, around 2006, world-renowned architect and designer Norman Foster 
was asked to spearhead the planning and development of an experimental, fully sustainable, carbon-neutral urban community in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, called Mazdar City. And at a, 20, uh, sorry, a 2009 symposium on the project and related topics, he said, here slightly abridged, given the urgency of the situation, given what is at stake, which is literally our survival as a species, the thing that I find inexplicable is that there is only one Mazdar. If there were 20 urban experiments happening around the planet now, one would be very, very critical and say, why only 20? That is prophetic imagination. So too, scholar David Corton and Buddhist systems thinker and activist Joanna Macy outlined three major areas for assisting what they term in the title of their book, The Great Turning from Empire to Earth Community. The first area is actions to slow the damage, which include things like blockades and boycotts, as well as political and legal interventions. The second is analysis of structural causes, which seeks to understand the interlocking systems that, in, that indenture us to an insatiable extractive economy and works to create sustainable alternatives. The third area is engendering a shift in consciousness. This work, the one most evident here today, articulates and instills the underlying values that make possible wholesale cultural transformation. If we give it a little thought, depending on our temperaments and our aptitudes, each of us could likely find a way to plug our prophetic imaginations into at least one of these three action areas. And if you're not sure your efforts will matter, recall the words of one game changer, Mahatma Gandhi. Almost anything you do will seem insignificant, but it is very important that you do it. And about that wholesale shift in consciousness arena, a document known as the Earth Charter lays out a vision of this. According to the Wikipedia description, quote, the Earth Charter is a declaration of fundamental principles for building a just, sustainable, and peaceful global society in the 21st century. It was drafted at an unprecedented international consultation process involving thousands of experts and citizens from all walks of life the final text was approved at the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, headquarters in Paris in March 2000. The Earth Charter has been formally endorsed by organizations representing millions of people, including one you may have heard of, the Unitarian Universalist Association. If you're familiar with our seven principles, this makes sense, as many of these and the pillars of the Earth Charter fit hand in hand. Here's one abridged excerpt that expresses its central values. We stand at a critical moment in Earth's history, a time when humanity must choose its future. We must join together to bring forth a sustainable global society founded on respect for nature, universal human rights, economic justice, and a culture of peace. We are at once citizens of different nations and of one world in which the local and global 
are linked. Everyone shares responsibility for the present and future well-being of the human family and the larger living world. Let ours be a time remembered for the awakening of a new reverence for life, the firm resolve to achieve sustainability, the quickening of the struggle for justice and peace, and the joyful celebration of life. These passages, again, embody the prophetic imagination at work. And I consider the Earth Charter one case of modern-day scripture. And regarding its words about awakening to a new reverence for life, from which emerges all the other needed changes. At the symposium I cited earlier, architect Norman Foster made another comment. I think that probably we will have to get almost to the point of absolute desperation before everybody is forced to get their act together. And then the agonizing question will be, did everybody wake up in time or did they wake up too late? This question of awakening is one of the central questions of our age. And though it emerged from a, from a very different context, another biblical story provides a prophetic response. Because long ago, the prophet Ezekiel wrote to exiles whose homeland had been destroyed. He offered a vision of a new day, a time when those <clears throat> exiled would return to their land and dwell in peace when the land itself would be restored from devastation and bloom again. And the people dwelling there would be different because suffering and loss and lamentation had transformed them and cleansed them of the idols that had blinded them. That is to say, they woke up. They held a deeper awareness of who they were and what they needed to be about. And new communal values and structures followed. Ezekiel summed it up this way. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Denial to spiritual awakening. Apathy to activism. Foreseeing doom and mending our ways. A whole new civilization is begging to be born one that cherishes and protects the entirety of life. And UUCPA is one place where our vision expands, our consciousness awakens, and our hearts break open, both with lamentation and with a passion to help ensure that this irreplaceable totality remains intact. Prophecy fulfilled not by one prophet, as in some religious traditions, but by the prophethood of all people, by you and me. Not in the end times, but in these, 
the mend times. At root, Ezekiel called for a renewal of reverence, born of spiritual wakefulness. For he understood that when reverence is restored, our innate hearts of flesh response is to treasure all of life, to humbly celebrate humanity's place as just one among many living notes in the universe, the one song, the single resounding chorus of life in a world without end. Namaste, blessed be, and amen.